Amen. Wow, that is good to worship with you guys. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Hey, can we just take a second and thank the worship team? Because they come here, they give up their Thursday night, they practice all through the week, and they come here at the crack of dawn on Sunday mornings and get ready for that so that we can enter into the presence of God. So we want to honor that. Well, hey, it's a good morning to be together. Um, if you don't already know me, my name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, Pastor Joe and Janice are in Arizona this morning for a training. So I get to be with you today and I get to carry on in this series we've been in called Do You Believe? This is week three of this series. And um, honestly, as, as we go through it, I really hope that you find yourself challenged and convicted by this series. Now, those are not bad words, okay? Um, convict, biblically speaking, just means to bring to light or to expose or to correct. And I'll give you a spoiler alert. No matter how long you've been following after Jesus, you're never going to stop needing those things. So I want us to embrace this question as we go throughout the series. Do I believe? believe this stuff. This is a question that Jesus had people wrestle with as you read through the gospel accounts. And so it's a question that you and I can wrestle with as well. Do I believe? Because at the, at the bottom line, at the end of the day, is that belief is going to lead to action. Okay, where you don't see an action, you can ask a serious question about the belief. If I tell you that I can do something, if I tell you that I can run a race or write a song or play a song or, or fix something, whatever, if I tell you I can do it, but then I don't actually move one foot in front of the other to go do that thing, you can ask a serious question, does he actually believe that he can do that or not? Um, I, I've known someone in my life who uh, refused to play games with the rest of us, the, the crowd that wanted to play games uh, with him. He refused to play, and he cited the reason that he would just beat us and we'd be too easy for him. Um, and I assure you, this was not like a sarcastic, like, ah, I'm not going to play because I'll just beat you. No, he legitimately thought that he would beat us. But over time, you begin to really doubt that because he would never actually come and prove it. We call that talking a big game. Or uh, there's this idea of armchair quarterbacking. Have you ever heard that term before? Where you are sitting on your lazy boy and you have cracked your fifth Dr. Pepper of the day and you're on your second bag of Cheetos and there's a frozen pizza in the oven and you're sitting there watching Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers or Pat Mahomes or whoever's good these days and they miss a throw that just looks really, really easy and you sit there saying, I could have made that throw. Bro, no, you couldn't. I promise, I promise you, if they can't do it, then you can't do it. At the end of the day, beliefs are just words until you do something about it. What you believe ought to change the way that you live. Okay, we call that transformation. When what you believe should change the way that you live. And theologians have all kinds of these Asian words. And I don't know about you, but I get them really confused. There's sanctification and transformation and justification and glorification and all of the other Asians. But we can take a hint from these words because that suffix, Asian, that A-T-I-O-N, it implies some sort of action or some sort of process Right, so if, if, if we have theologians who study this stuff for a living and they're using all these action words, then it stands to reason that our faith, what we believe, is going to change us. It's going to change something in our lives. It initiates a process or an action. 
And if I can hop on the soapbox for just a second, I think that we have a problem in our culture with non-transformative Christianity, okay? And I'm going to criticize it because I've been there, because I've walked in it, because I've done it myself. We put so much emphasis on good things, but things like, do you read your Bible every day? Did you get through your, uh, through your Bible in a year plan? Uh, are you praying on a regular basis? Do you redeem your commute where you, you know, listen to worship music or instead of listening to NPR, I'm going to turn on a sermon because I'm holy, right? We, we, we do these things and we say, oh, I'm going I'm to be nice and I'm not going to sin and I'm not going to drink and I'm not going to smoke and all these kind of great things. And these are fine. These are good things to do, okay? Don't not pray. Don't not read your Bible, but we confuse the fruit of Christianity with the root of Christianity. There's a song that I know, and it says, they say that good boys walk straight on white lines. Good boys keep their livers clean and smoke out of their lungs because it's all about what you've done, and good boys don't make mistakes to learn from. And man, if that is not how some of us look at life and how some of us, even some of us who espouse the name of Christ, look at Christianity. We treat it like some sort of vaccine or hazmat suit that's going to keep us from worldliness. So we're not going to end up being like those people. Or we treat it like some sort of code where these are the things Christians do and these are the things Christians don't do. And if a Christian does this, he's not a Christian. And if someone else does this, they must be a Christian. Okay, if we get bogged down in that though, if we start looking just at behaviors, then the, the lines start to get blurred really, really fast because, spoiler alert again, I will tell you that as you go about your life, you're going to find people who are gentler than you and kinder than you and more patient than you and who seem to display certain fruits of the Spirit more than you do. So then what do you do when you meet that person? Oh, they're a good person by all accounts, but they're not a Christian. How do you deal with that? Right? I think it's, the, the bottom line is this. People are people and people sin. And the gospel clears up for us that everybody sins. So it's not about do you sin or do you not sin? But the question is going to be, what do you do with your sin? When you stand before God and you give an account one day, what's your answer for your sin? Right? Are you going to go through life and you're going to say, uh, well, I've done all these good things, therefore all these things are excused? Or are you going to say, you know what, I've done a lot of bad things, I've done a lot of good things, but none of that matters because at the end of the day, the only thing that justifies me is the blood of Jesus speaking on my behalf and the forgiveness of my sins. That's what it all comes down to. So an encounter with Jesus has to leave us different from the way that we were before, a way that makes people stop and ask questions. And listen, along the way, your morality, your set of behaviors, that's going to be transformed too, and that's a good thing, but it's more than that. So we get to our text today. We're going to be in uh, the book of John, chapter 9, and I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, to get it out. If you have a Bible app or something like that, um, you can get that out. But we're going to put it up on the screen as well. Now, I'm not going to read the entire chapter because the whole chapter is one story, and it's the story I want to talk about today. And if I read the whole thing to you, I probably would be out of time. Um, so I'm just going to read part of it, summarize part of it, read the rest. Um, so here we are, John chapter 9, the first 11 verses say this. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. There you have it. That's how it happened. Hook, line, and sinker. That's the whole entire story. Okay. Now, uh, after, after he tells his story to his neighbors and people who'd seen him, uh, they take this guy to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees ask him a similar question. This whole account kind of almost reads like a trial where they're cross-referencing and, and, and all these things. Um, but, but he explains, listen, this is what happened. I went, th- this guy Jesus comes up, he spits on the ground, he anointed my eyes with the mud, and I went and I washed and I came back seeing. That's what I know. And, and the, the Pharisees, some of them dismiss Jesus out of hand because they're like, well, the only problem with your story is that all this stuff happened on the Sabbath. And if he was really from God, he wouldn't be doing this work on the Sabbath. But then there's another group of people and they're like, wait a second, how can he not be from God? If, if someone can make a blind man able to see, he must be from God. And so then they ask the, the man himself, the, the previously blind man, if I call him a blind man, it gets confusing. It, it, it's, it's, it's cumbersome to say the guy who used to be blind. So I'm just going to call him the blind guy, okay? But we know that he can see now. So they ask him what he thinks of Jesus. And he says, I think he's a prophet. So then the next thing they do is they go and find this guy's parents. And they bring him in and they say, hey, is this guy your son? Was he really born, uh, was he really born blind? And they say, yep, that's our guy. That's our, that's our boy. He was born blind. I can promise you that. I can confirm that. But we don't know how he can see now. And we don't know who did it. Because as you read the text, and I would encourage you to verify everything that I'm telling you right now. But as you read the text, you see that if anyone said that Jesus was the Christ, they were going to be kicked out of the synagogue. So they're saying, hey, ask him. We're not going to say one way or the other. We want to stay in the synagogue. So ask our son. He's of age. He can tell you. So they bring the guy back and they say, listen, here's the deal, buddy. We need you to worship God the way that we think you should worship God. Because we know this Jesus guy is a sinner. And then we get probably the iconic verse of this whole entire story where he says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Okay, I love this because this guy can only speak of his own experience. He's only going to tell what he knows, okay? And let me encourage you. You don't have to be a theologian to share the gospel with people, okay? You don't have to break it down into the minutia of, well, this is the physical process by which, you know, Mary could have been, been pregnant even though she, you know, was, was still a virgin. It's like you don't have to get into all that kind of stuff. What you experience is what you know. This guy was not an optometrist. This guy was not a psychologist. He could not sit there and explain to them how all of a sudden uh, the, the parts of his brain were communicating with his visceral receptors and the, these neurons were firing that used to not be firing. He just said, 
dude, I don't know. I just couldn't see before, but now I can. Now, there's a reason why John writes in the book of Revelation, verse, uh, chapter 11, chapter 12, rather, verse 11, that they, the saints, conquered him who is Satan or the accuser of the brethren by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. It's because your testimony matters. Your story of what God has done in your life is the one thing that people cannot take away from you. And whether they believe it or not is up to them. But you know what you've experienced. You know how your life has changed since Jesus came along. And this is what they try to get this guy to do. They try to trap him up in different parts of his story and get him to renege on different parts of his story. They ask him things like, uh, is this really the guy who used to be blind? Was he really born blind? Did the guy that, that healed you, is he really from God? And then if, if, if all those answers are satisfactory, then they say, well, explain to us how this happened. And, and they try to stump him in that. And listen, this is what's going to happen to you and I if we're followers of Jesus. The enemy is going to try to get us to doubt various aspects of our story. He's going to ask things like, did you ever really change? Were you really all that different before Jesus came along? Did you really need Jesus all that much? Were you really that bad off before he came all these things that you're saying happened in your life, were those really a byproduct of Jesus living in your heart and being the Lord of your life? Or is it just, does it just so happen that you figured something out and you, you figured out the key to life and you know, you've ended up saving yourself? Was that really God who is at work? Or how is it even possible that you can be different? You are so bad off, you're irredeemable, whatever. He's gonna try to get you to doubt your story. The, the best thing that Satan could hope for is for you to believe that God's not even real. The next best thing he could hope for is that you believe he's real, but he's uninvolved, he's uninterested, he's unloving, he's unreliable, he's unverifiable, and ultimately he's not even necessary. This is the enemy's game. If you read the creation account when you have the fall, Genesis chapter 3, Satan doesn't tell Eve that God didn't say that. He suggests it. He plants a seed. He says, hey, did God really say not to eat from that? You tell me, did God really say it? And then it starts to make you ask questions. You're like, well, I don't know. Did God really say it? And then one thing led to another, and here we are, right? Now, we fast forward into this particular account in John chapter 9. We're kind of coming back to that. And we're going we're gonna to fast forward to verse 35. So what happened in the meantime is that um, the, the Pharisees tried to get him to, to denounce Jesus and say that he's a sinner. And he absolutely won't do it. And they have this little back and forth. And there's some sarcasm. And it's kind of funny. And he's like, hey, do you guys want to come worship Jesus too? And they're like, get out of here, dude. You were born in utter sin. And they cast him out of the synagogue because he believed that Jesus was the Christ. So here's where we pick, out, uh, pick up in verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to him, said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So there we have it. 
John chapter 9. We have the story of a guy whose life was radically altered when he had an encounter with Jesus. It's an illustration to us of the fact that the gospel changes absolutely everything. The gospel turns our lives upside down and inside out. It doesn't just comfortably nestle up into, in, next to us into our lives. It comes in and it wrecks the whole entire order. The, 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 the blind guy, the guy who used to be blind, he doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, thanks, Jesus. I had all this stuff going for me, but the one thing I needed was to be able to see, and you've given me that, so now I'm good. He says, he, he, he's grateful. He is in awe. He worships Jesus. He risks his position in the community. He gets kicked out of his synagogue, excommunicated, because he, he has to give the credit to Jesus. So let me ask you, do you believe that the gospel changes everything? Do you believe that the gospel is more than a moral code? Do you believe that it's more than a new set of disciplines and habits? Do you believe that it's more than a new mindset? That it's more than just positive thinking? Do you believe that the gospel is more than the final piece of the puzzle that is your life? Okay, there's an old song, and I'm going to throw some shade at it. If you like it, I'm sorry. But uh, there's a song, and it says, the, uh, there's a God-shaped hole in all of us, and the restless soul is searching. And I think that's a really nice sentiment. But the problem with that is, there is not a God-shaped hole. Our very heart needs God. And the idea is not that he comes in and he patches up the old heart. But the, the, the idea is he, he gets rid of the old heart altogether, and he puts in a new heart, a heart that is sensitive to God. It doesn't just make everything click. It takes over the whole order. It takes over your whole entire life. Do you believe that? If you consider the parable of the, the pearl of great price, it's in Matthew chapter 13. I would encourage you to read it for yourself. But you have this pearl merchant, and, and Jesus tells the story of, of he, he finds this pearl, and it's worth a whole, whole lot. And so he, he wants to go and get this pearl. And let me just tell you, the story does not go that he buys the pearl and puts it next to all of his other pearls and says, look at my great pearl collection. No, he gets rid of all of the other pearls just to buy the one. So let me ask you, is the gospel, is the kingdom of God your pearl in your life? Is it your treasure? Is it the thing that you are putting at the center of your life? Is it what you live for? The mission statement of this church <clears throat> is to invite people into relationship with Jesus and to see their lives changed through discipleship. Do you believe that's possible? Do you believe it's possible for your life to change? Do you believe it's possible for your neighbor's life to change, for your family member's life to change? And then on top of that, do you believe that when they have an encounter with Jesus, that's exactly what's going to happen? Here's how. First of all, <clears throat> Jesus changes your way, okay? Read through the Gospels and you're going to see this illustrated time and time again, but let me give you a few examples, okay? Jesus takes 12 guys who were fishermen, there was a tax collector, there were a few tradesmen, we're not necessarily positive what all of them did. He takes them out of their professions and he gives them a job in full-time ministry and he says, come follow me, come travel with me, come see what I'm doing. And he changes their lives. He changes their ways. 
If you read Mark chapter 5, you're going to see the story of a man who was demon-possessed. He was out of his ever-loving mind. He was stark buck naked. He lived on a, you know, island all by himself. Uh, He, he, the, the, the text says that no one could bind him with chains anymore. So he's got super strength. And then he cuts himself with stones every day. And this is the guy that Jesus comes up to. And and what Jesus does is he casts the demon out of this guy and he leaves him clothed and in his right mind. And then you read on in Mark chapter five and you hear the story of a woman who's had this issue of blood for 12 years. And, And Mark writes that this woman has spent every penny that she has trying to get help. She's basically dedicated the last 12 years of her life to getting better and nothing is working. Nothing is helping. But then what happens? She finds Jesus. She touches Jesus Jesus feels power go out from him and he says, who touched me? And she's like, Lord, it was me. Is that okay? And he says, yes, your faith has made you well. He took someone with a chronic condition that absolutely no one could help with. Absolutely no one could give her any aid. And just like that, he changes the course of her life. You'll see more of this as you read through the gospels. You see Jesus take addicts and people who are possessed and he makes them free. He takes outcasts and he brings them in. He takes lame people and he makes them walk. He takes blind people and he makes them able to see. He takes deaf people and makes them able to hear. He takes dead people and makes them alive. He takes guilty people and forgives their sin. He takes sinners and tells them, go and sin no more. Jesus changes your way. This is what he does. It's, it's his business. This is his MO. He changes your way of living. He changes your state of being. He changes your life's trajectory. So I'm asking, do you believe that? Do you believe that your life's trajectory needs to change? Do you believe in the judgment? I realize that kind of makes me sound a little bit 18th century, but that's fine. After all, as you read this text, you see that Jesus says it is for judgment that I came into the world, that those who are blind, those who are unaware of it, may see. And those who see, as in those who think they've got it figured out how to please God, how to make God happy, might become blind because Jesus subverts the whole thing. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit comes into the world to convict the world, to convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Do you believe that there is a wrath? Do you believe that the wrath of God is a real thing? And not only is it real, but it is perfectly just. It is perfectly right. It is perfectly holy because our sin, however big or small you and I may see it as being, it is such an offense to the holiness and perfection of God himself that it warrants wrath. And let me just say that without the wrath of God, the gospel's not glorious, okay? If you want to take the wonder out of the gospel, take the wrath out of the gospel. And this is happening in our world today because if there's no wrath, then there's no cross. There's no propitiation for sin. There's no forgiveness. It's not necessary. There's no mercy. It's not necessary. And the whole entire thing falls apart. And when we stand up here and we sing songs like Jesus paid it all, he paid what? There's nothing to pay. That's why it matters. That's why it's important to keep that and and to remember that it is a real part 
of the story. But here's the good news. When you and I put our faith in Christ, when we trust and obey and make him Lord of our lives, the, the book of Colossians says that we are transferred out of, the, out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God. And that is good news. Jesus changes your way. Jesus is the way. Next, Jesus changes your why. As the gospels at work in us, it changes our hearts. It changes our, our, our motivations. The gospel is God-initiated love being offered to us freely without price. And that frees us to then love God and to love other people and to even love ourselves in the right way. It's no longer an attempt. We don't have to try anymore to justify ourselves, to justify our positions before God. And if you're like me and you forget what these specific terms mean, let me just illustrate it this way. Um, if you were to ask me to justify why I got up on stage and talked to you for 30 minutes today, I would say it's because Pastor Joe told me to. Okay? I am citing his authority for my position, right? So justification before God looks like, okay, why do you get to inherit the kingdom of God? And the answer is quite simply because I put my faith in Christ and Jesus had his body broken and his blood shed on my behalf. And he said that all I have to do is believe and to love him and obey his commandments. And that is my justification. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are suddenly controlled. We are compelled by something different. It's the love of Christ. He is our entire reason. We're no longer motivated by self-preservation or self-justification or self-care or self-loathing or self-anything else. The self is taken out of it. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. And it gives us a different kind of love. It gives us a love for ourselves. It gives us a love for other people that springs out of a love for God. If we look back at the blind man for just a second, he had every opportunity to renege on his story, to throw Jesus under the bus, and to stay in the synagogue. But he couldn't do that because his story was, Jesus did this, and I'm going to give Jesus the worship that Jesus deserves. I'm going to give Jesus the credit that Jesus deserves in my life, even if it means I'm going to get kicked out. And this is what he did. And let me just say that this is usually the line in the sand for people. Okay? If I can uh, paint with a very broad brush for just a moment, I don't think it's a stretch to say that most people don't have a huge problem with the concept, the idea of God right? We're spiritual people. We, we tend to live with this awareness that there is something else. There is someone else. There's a higher power. There's something out there. Um, and, and what he's like and who he is, that can all be uh, questioned later on down the line. But most people don't have an idea or don't have a problem with the idea that there is a God. The, the, the problem comes when you start to, uh, to, to nail down and say, Jesus is God, Right? The Pharisees had no problem with God. The Pharisees believed in God. But as soon as the, the, the man who was formerly blind comes along and says, yeah, this Jesus, God sent this guy. That's where they drew the line. That's what they couldn't stand for anymore. 
Let me ask you this, just for your consideration. Chew on it a little bit. Think about it yourself, please. But what made the blind guy, who can now see, what made him different from all of the other people who could see? They're finally equal. They're finally even. He can finally see. But the difference is that Jesus did this for him and that he worships Jesus for it. Listen, friends, in the world, we do not have a monopoly on morality, okay? Christians are not the only ones who are nice to their neighbors. Christians are not the only ones who, who work hard at their jobs and, and are kind to people. We don't have a monopoly on that. But when we cite Jesus as our source for our transformation, that is what offends people. When we, when we cite that we have a different reason, a different way of doing things, this is what offends people. To say that Jesus is God, that he is the way to the Father, he is the source and the only source of salvation, that is what offends people. And along the way, we have a different way, we have a different why for doing the things that we do. Listen, all those things about keeping the rules, about, you know, not drinking, not smoking, don't sleep with your girlfriend, uh, be nice to people, be kind, all that stuff, that's great. But we do that because we love Jesus. When we feed the hungry, it's because we love Jesus. When we clothe the naked, it's because we love Jesus. When we heal the sick and provide care to people, it's because we love Jesus. When we give someone a cold glass of water, it's because we love Jesus. It's because Jesus is God come down in the form of man, crucified for our sins in our place, raised up, and he told me to do that stuff. And so I'm doing it because I love Jesus. I'm doing it not so that I can feel better about myself, not to make the world a better place, not even necessarily primarily for the other person. I'm doing it because Jesus told me to, because he's my Lord, because he paid my debt, because I owe him everything. I owe him my very being. Jesus comes along and he reorders our affections where we love God the most. Remember, the, 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 the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God. And the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus changes our why. Finally, Jesus changes your eye. And I realized that I, I missed the opportunity for a really good joke here because I could have said uh, your EYE because we're talking about a blind guy and his eyes didn't work and now they do, but I missed that. So here we are. But Jesus changes your very person, okay? He changes who you are. I love that as we read this story, the people who knew the blind man while he was blind, they have to question, is this actually him? And some said yes, and other people goes, no, he just looks exactly like him. I love that the Pharisees have to ask the parents to confirm that he was actually born blind. Because he was so radically different, people didn't know if it was him. People couldn't tell it was him. If you read in Acts 4.13, um, you're going to read about Peter and John, and they're before some, um, some religious bigwigs, and they're preaching the gospel and talking about Jesus and how uh, God sent Jesus, and you crucified him, and he rose again on the third day, and he's the only way to salvation and all this stuff. And as you read through the text, you see that they were confused, the, 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 um, the, the bigwigs were confused, because here's Peter and here's John, and these are common, uneducated men. They don't have a college degree. They haven't read all the books. They don't know all the stuff. But here they are. They're in front of us and we're a big deal. And they're preaching and they're doing it boldly. 
Why is that? Well, as you read on, you see that they recognized that they had been with Jesus. An encounter with Jesus, walking with Jesus for all the years that they did, left them different in spite of all their qualifications, in spite of their backgrounds. It left them as men who were bold enough to share the message if it meant that it cost them their very lives. And then my last and and favorite example of of Jesus changing someone's very person is a man named Saul, who you're probably familiar with. New Testament Saul, not Old Testament Saul. Um, he, he's a guy who used to oversee the murder of Christians. He used to stand there and watch while they stoned Christians to death. And all of a sudden, Jesus meets him one day on the road to Damascus, and he gets scales over his eyes, and he becomes blind. And he's another guy who can see later on because of the power of God in his life. But, but, but a man who oversaw Christians being murdered, who later described himself in a letter he wrote to Timothy as being an insolent opponent and the chief of sinners, the worst of them all. And God turned him into the greatest church planter and theologian and writer of half the New Testament that the world knows. Wouldn't it be cool if someone took the mantle of greatest church planter from Paul one day? That's just a side note, but I think that'd be neat. And all of a sudden, Paul, uh, Saul, while he's still Saul, he's in the synagogue one day and he goes, yeah, this Jesus guy, he's the son of God. And then you see these Jews and they're like, wait a second. We've seen this guy wreak havoc on people who say that Jesus is the son of God. What's up with him? He's a new person. He is a new man. And then he later on writes very famously that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. The gospel changes everything. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your life can be radically different because of the power of God in your life? Because of an encounter that you had with him, because you see his great love for you, that your life can be different. Are you tired of your way? Are you tired of your why? Are you tired of your I? Do you need to be changed this morning? Do you need to be renewed this morning? I wanna invite you to come and encounter Jesus this morning. Listen, here's what we're gonna do. We're about to stand up and worship, but we have people up here on either side uh, who would love to pray with you. This is not their job. They do this because they love it. They do this because they want to pray with you. And I wanna encourage you, don't miss your opportunity to come and get prayer. If you're watching us online, first of all, so thrilled you've made it this far. Um, But also you can go to the website, vineyardrichmond.com. And in the bottom right-hand corner, there's going to be a a little green button that says uh, chat. And there's a real person on the other side who would love to pray with you. And hey, even if you're in the building and you don't feel like coming up, maybe you feel a little sheepish or embarrassed, that's totally fine. I want to encourage you, take advantage of that on your phone. Pop open your your browser and go to vineyardrichman.com. Just use that prayer chat. It is there for you. We talked last week about how God wants to speak to you. And I believe that's the case today. I believe God wants to encounter you today. I believe that God wants to change your life today. And we want to do that. We want to to see what that means. We want to encounter that life-changing power in our lives. So let's, uh, let's take a moment. I just want to pray before we stand to our feet and worship.
Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the truth of your gospel. We thank you for the power of your gospel. We thank you, God, that you are the God who takes what can't possibly change and you change it anyway because it's who you are and because you're able to do it. God, we thank you that you are the God who makes blind eyes see, that you are the God who gives strength to lame legs and helps people to walk again, that you are the God who breathes life into dead and dying hearts and you give life again. God, we have come here this morning because we want to experience your life-changing power. So God, I ask that where there is where there is fear, where there is doubt, where there is brokenness, where there is hopelessness, God, we just ask that you would come and intervene, that you would breathe your life, your, your life into that. God, that where there are circumstances that feel like they cannot possibly change, God, I ask that as we come to you this morning, as we come to you knowing that you are the only way, that you are, are, are the source of all things good, you are, you are the omnipotent God who can do absolutely anything, I pray that as we come to you this morning that you would change these things. We're a people who need you this morning, God. We are in need of your touch. And so won't you come, Holy Spirit? Won't you be at work? Will you be working on our sin? Will you be working on our righteousness? God, would you be at work in our hearts as we come before you this morning? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.